Isaiah chapter 52, please. We're taking a break from the book of Ecclesiastes. We will return to it. Today, Isaiah 52. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some at the information table behind that curtain. Those are there for you as a gift. Love for you to have a Bible. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It is a bit to the right of middle in your Bible. It's a large book, so you can find it pretty readily. We're going to cover the end of 52 and all of 53 over five sermons leading up through Good Friday and Easter. Isaiah, this portion of Isaiah, will be our lens on Christ and his finished work as we approach and celebrate Easter. Also, would you notice on that note, you have Easter invitations in your bulletin. So friends, please take those with you. Not only are you invited, we ask you to use these to invite others, your friends, your neighbors, co-workers, what have you. Invite people to come join us here and hear the good news of our risen Savior. In fact, I think as Eric Lemkewell reminded me, it's a great chance to invite someone and then have them over for lunch afterwards. Make it, make it a time of hospitality. Make it an event together. Easter, friends, is a golden opportunity to reach out with the love of Christ. And isn't it, isn't it so poignant for us to do right now, coming out of a pandemic, to hold out the promise of life? So please take these with you and use those. I'd like to pray, and then Alan will read our passage for us. Spirit of God, would you fill us even now? Would you grant us the gift of illumination, open the eyes of our hearts to understand, apply, and ultimately be transformed by what we see here in your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they shall have not heard they understand. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Alan. Her name was Mary. One night at a dinner party, she shocked everyone else at the party when she took very expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet with this ointment and then wiped them with her hair. The ointment was worth approximately a year's worth of wages. Let's call it $60,000. Why would someone pour out $60,000 worth of ointment on someone else's feet? Where do you get that kind of sacrificial, joy-filled devotion? Where? His name was Peter. Peter denied Jesus in Jesus' greatest hour, saying three times, I don't know the guy, never met the guy. 
And yet soon after, Peter would stand up and boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, unafraid of what others would think, unmoved by their rejection or their hostility. Why would someone do that? What could make someone so joyfully zealous, passionate, and courageous for Christ? Another was named Paul. A respected scholar, highly trained, very intelligent, and an angry persecutor of Christians. He was on a mission to lock up more Christians when Jesus locked him up, knocked him off his horse, addressed him by name, and informed him through another individual of how much he would suffer for the name of Jesus. And suffer Paul did as he planted churches and built up Christians throughout the Mediterranean world, even to his death in prison. Why would someone give up their prestige to gladly suffer for Christ like that? I hope in those examples, and we could cite many others, that we feel a certain tension in our hearts, wanting to know on the one hand, what explains their joy and passion, their commitment and glad-hearted sacrifice, and do I want the same for my life? Do I want the same? My hope over these five sermons in Isaiah is that we gain more of what they have that we respond like they responded. Because what transformed their lives and thrilled their souls is what Isaiah saw seven centuries before them. Isaiah saw someone called the servant. And here he tells us three essential things about this servant. Three things that you and I must understand if we are to have a similar joy and passion. Let's call the first the exaltation of the servant. First, the exaltation of the servant. A little background. Isaiah was called to be a prophet around 740 B.C., a time of prosperity in Israel. Business was booming. The stock market at all-time highs, but... The people were drifting from God. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are largely judgment-oriented. But then in chapter 40, a transition happens in Isaiah. Beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah starts to look out more than 100 years from his own time when the southern kingdom of Judah would be in exile in Babylon. Isaiah sees that time in the second section of Isaiah. And beginning in chapter 40, God through Isaiah gives more of a message of comfort and restoration. And that's the section we're in. A time of, a section of comfort and promised restoration. And in this section, this enigmatic figure called the servant appears four times. Four servant songs. Sometimes the servant in this section seems to be equated with Israel. 
maybe representing Israel or embodying Israel. And other times the servant is clearly an individual. And in these four servant songs, some things are said about this servant that are hard to put together, hard to reconcile. In chapter 42, the servant brings justice to the nations. And yet, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He takes what would be otherwise discarded and restores with gentleness. In chapter 49, the servant will bring Israel back to the Lord. And the servant serves as a light for the nations. What Israel was to be, the servant accomplishes for the nations. And then in chapter 50, the servant suffers. He says, quote, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So in the first three servant songs, the servant has this worldwide mission of justice and restoration, yet will suffer rejection and disgrace. It's a confusing combination until this last servant song, this fourth servant song, brings the pieces together. Chapter 52, verse 13. God says, Behold, or look, watch, pay attention. My servant shall act wisely or successfully. He will succeed in his God-given mission. He will accomplish his God-given task. And then we're given a clue into the identity of this servant here. The verse continues. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, very exalted. Threefold exaltation there. High or raised, lifted up, greatly exalted. Now, track with me. Two of those underlying Hebrew words in that threefold exaltation, two of those underlying Hebrew words are used in the same way in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord, God, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Did you catch that? High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah sees these heavenly beings extolling the glory of Yahweh, Israel's God, shielding their eyes from his splendor and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. He is other. He is transcendent. He is a, a category all by himself. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Every nook and cranny of creation screaming out his splendor and majesty. He's high and lifted up. The whole earth full of his glory. You probably have heard about NASA's James Webb Telescope. The James Webb Telescope, my understanding, unlike the Hubble Telescope, which orbits around the Earth, 
The James Webb is orbiting around the sun, giving us an extraordinary opportunity to see things in the universe we've not yet seen. The first images were recently sent back from the James Webb with a, a test of its capabilities, make sure it's working okay. So it sent back an image of an unexceptional star, HD 84406, a star that is 100 times more faint than what you can see with your naked eye. But that's not what captivated astronomers. Astronomers were captivated by the spray of tiny dots across the background of that image, of that unexceptional star. Because each of those tiny dots was a distant galaxy we'd never seen of the billions of galaxies in the universe, each extolling the glory of this holy, holy God. The whole earth, the universe is full of his glory. Isaiah sees that God on his throne in chapter 6 and says he's high and lifted up. In chapter 52, he describes the servant in the same way. High. Lifted up, greatly exalted. It is a clue, maybe more than a clue, of who this is, is it not? He's going to share the throne somehow with God himself, for the coming Messiah is divine. This is the one we celebrate at Good Friday and Easter. As the gospel writer John confirms, he cites, in John chapter 12, he cites Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, 1. John cites both those passages that I referenced, both those passages, and says, of Jesus, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. So make no mistake, friends, Jesus Christ is this highly exalted servant. And maybe, just maybe, as one commentator says, this threefold exaltation maybe prepares us for his resurrection from the dead, ascension back to heaven, and present glorification. That's the exalted servant. Then Isaiah describes the responses here to the servant. So second, see the responses. The responses to the servant. God addresses the servant directly now in verse 14. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, as many were appalled at you. It's a strong word. Many were appalled at you. Many were shocked at you, servant. Why? Well, two parallel statements tell us why. His appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was literally disfigured, no longer resembling a human. 
The servant now a tortured individual, no longer resembling a man. People are, in a sense, asking, is that a human? And you can't help now but think of the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't but help now think of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, the movie The Passion of Christ came out. Not a perfect movie, but I think in ways a powerful one. It was controversial for this reason, that it was too violent, that it depicted crucifixion as being too bloody or violent. And to be honest, it had toned things down. Roman crucifixion was a form of execution by prolonged torture. It was meant to send a statement. You don't want what happened to him to happen to you. It was meant to haunt you in your nightmares. It's what Jesus endured to the uttermost. First beaten by Jewish guards, spit upon and, and mocked, and then scourged, scourged by Roman soldiers. Scourging involved being whipped with Leather that had embedded bits of bone and metal, the purpose being to rip the flesh off of your bones. I'm not exaggerating. Scourging ripped the flesh off of your bones. Many died from the scourging alone. Then, to further mock him, a crown of thorns driven into his skull. Not, not lightly placed on his scalp certainly driven into the bones of his skull, producing streams of blood down his face, and only then taken away to be crucified. Wrists and ankles driven through with metal spikes, hanging there until he gave up his life. God simply says through Isaiah, many were appalled. Appearance was so disfigured. So this first response here is revulsion, shock. Revolted at this disfigured servant. That's the first response we see here. And then Isaiah tells us of a very different second response. The second response is found in verse 15. Verse 15 begins, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And then the response, kings, representing those many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Kings, representing those many nations, are, are rendered speechless. Their mouths shut in, in stunned silence. One commentator calls this response speechless astonishment. I call it awe. But it seems to be a believing awe here because two parallel statements tell us why they respond this way. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they now understand. It appears they are in stunned astonishment. They are in awe because what they had not previously been told, they now see, they now comprehend. What they would not been 
heard, not heard previously, they now understand. They see and understand what? They see and understand this disfigured servant is indeed the exalted one. As Alec Matir explains, they start back from the sufferer only to find once the truth has been revealed that in his suffering lies their highest benefit. That's the response of all. They start back from this grotesque figure only to find, once the truth is revealed or explained to them, that in his sufferings is their and our highest good. This is what Mary and Peter and Paul were transformed by. This was their response at some point when they encountered what Isaiah is describing. So catch this, two responses are highlighted for us by Isaiah. One is revulsion, one is awe. And the pivot between the two is in the words that begin verse 15. So shall he sprinkle. The way the stanza is structured is there are two responses that have a fulcrum, like the middle of a seesaw. The pivot point, so shall he sprinkle. Everything turns on those words, so shall he sprinkle. So what does that mean? Well, thirdly then, the sprinkling by the servant. Third, the sprinkling by the servant. Now your Bible or Bible app probably has a footnote that says, or startle as an alternative translation. And startle, startle is a legitimate possible translation. But I think sprinkle is better. For Isaiah's first readers, this word is, was in their Bible, their old, our Old Testament, 22 times, 22 times to refer to sprinkling with blood. Sprinkling with blood, the blood of a sacrifice. Sprinkled blood on the priests. Sprinkled blood in front of the veil. Sprinkled blood on the altar where Israel worshipped. Sprinkling with blood meant a death occurred, the death of a substitute in your Place. This was throughout their Bible. This, I believe, would have been the word, the imagery, the meaning conjured up for them. It was how you approached this holy, holy, holy God. You approached only by the sprinkling with blood, only by the death of a substitute that you might live. Think about it. You can't, you can't simply waltz through the gates of the White House and say, is Joe home? I'm here to see the president. Is Joe here? You won't, you won't get in. You won't get near the place. Now, multiply that a trillion fold. You can't just waltz into the presence of a holy 
holy, holy God, just like you are. You must be cleansed somehow. So a substitute died. That's the point of the sprinkling. A substitute died. The substitute bore the death penalty that you might live. You were cleansed like that. Now remember this section has in mind a certain background. Israelites who would be in exile in Babylon. So maybe, maybe the point was, Israel, this is the kind of deliverance you ultimately need. Not getting you back home from exile, as important as that is. Not getting you out of Babylon. The deliverance you ultimately need, Israel, is being sprinkled by this servant, and the same is true of us. The Apostle Peter starts his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, writing to Christians, saying he was writing, quote, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. For sprinkling with his blood. Friends, Jesus Christ is the exalted, suffering servant who sprinkles with his blood, who cleanses by his death. But, but why? I mean, if we're to respond in the latter way, seeing and understanding this, we need to ask why. Why be cleansed like this? Why be sprinkled by the servant? On the one hand, like I mentioned, it's because of who God is. He's holy, holy, holy. He is transcendent. He is other. He is the creator of those distant galaxies and of you and me. We need to be cleansed certainly because of who God is, but but also because of who we are. I recently read an older book on preaching. It's a book about 40 years old, but a number of folks had recommended it. And the author made a fascinating point. He said how in Christian theology textbooks, the order goes like this. What's God like? What's Christ like? What's he done? And what are we like? That's a logical progression. That's how a textbook does it. God, Christ, us. But then the author said, but in reality, in our hearts, the reverse order happens. How we think of ourselves drives how we think of Christ. He said, if you are rather optimistic about your condition, if you believe that sin is just some form of ignorance, then you will emphasize Christ as teacher. Wisdom, growing in wisdom, will be salvation for you. But, he said, if you see yourself as hopelessly crippled spiritually, spiritually in need of deliverance, spiritually in need of desperate rescue, you will have a much more different view of the work of Jesus. You will want the servants sprinkling with his blood, will you not? So how do you view yourself, friends? How do you view yourself? 
if you would say, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not, I'm not perfect, but no one is. But I'm rather optimistic about how I'm doing before God. I'm fine. Left to myself. I, I have a lot of human potential. Then you might be revolted by the cross of Christ. You might find it uh, grotesque, and it is. But you will never see and understand like that second response. But if you say, I'm, <laughs> I'm not okay. Not even close. I'm guilty before a holy God in every way. I'm covered in the shame of my sin. I'm covered in my rebellion. And I have no place to hide. I have nothing to help me. I cannot deliver myself in the least. If you say that about yourself, then you can see and understand and respond with awe at the suffering, exalted, servant. For you will see your need to be cleansed or sprinkled by him. If you've yet to realize that response, but you realize now you need to, I urge you, friend, to come to Christ. Come to him believing. We are told here in Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break. A Faintly burning wick, he will not snuff out. He is gentle. His heart is gentle toward you. His hands reaching out to you to welcome you home, to restore you and cleanse you. Come to him even now. Believe it. Those are the people like Mary and Peter and Paul, consumed with love, Consume with joy. Consume with passion for this servant because they encountered what Isaiah saw. Don't you want that for yourself, that response? I want to feel what they felt and live how they lived for this servant. To be, I want to use the word consumed with joy-filled passion for Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, we forget how much we need the suffering Savior's cleansing work. One of you recently, and I, I'm sorry, I don't recall who it was, remind me afterwards if this was you. One of you recently said to me, you were just so glad that Jesus had cleansed your soul. And I heard one of you say that, and I was ministered to and challenged by your statement because I thought, you know, I have not been thinking much about my need to be cleansed by Jesus Christ. Don't you find this dynamic as we grow over the years, as we mature, which is good, we start to sometimes think we don't need Jesus quite as much. I'm kind of pretty good on my own now. Can you relate to that? Friends, as we approach Good Friday and Easter, let's do verse 13. Behold, look, watch the servant act 
wisely. Behold him being successful in his mission. Behold him again and again and again until our hearts are filled with awe and wonder and joy and passion in response to him. The famous composer Robert Schumann was put into an asylum for his mental instability. But Schumann wrote in his diaries what he said he was suffering from. Schumann said he was perpetually hearing in his mind the musical note A. Now, I don't know what note that is, but it's a musical note. He said he was always hearing in his mind the musical note of A. It was part of Schumann's insanity, always hearing one note. I heard that and I thought, that's the Christian's sanity. Always hearing one note. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning. Always one note resounding over every other note in our hearts and minds, the exalted, suffering one who cleanses us. Always that note most important to us. So many other notes, friends, are being sounded, it seems, around us. So many other notes over the past two years have taken on, it seems to me, an exaggerated importance through political changes, societal turmoil, pandemic stresses, so many other notes sounding in our ears, resounding in our hearts, seeming to be more important in the church today, other notes dividing Christian from Christian, brother and sister in Christ. I hope if you are asked, what's your church all about? that you say, we mainly have one note. We try to make sure one note keeps ringing in our ears and echoing in our hearts that the suffering one is exalted and he cleanses us. That Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, is returning that that one note is what we are always all about. Then we are like Mary, are we not? Then we are like Peter and Paul, consumed with joy, consumed with passion, consumed with love for him. So friends, do, do two things, simple things. Remind yourself this week that you need this cleansing. Yes, we are forgiven once for all, yet we still sin. Don't forget your need of the Savior's cleansing. Remind yourself, I, I need the exalted suffering Savior. Never think you've outgrown or matured beyond your need of one main note. And then, second, Behold his servant who acted wisely. Behold again and again the suffering, exalted Savior, high and lifted up, 
who died for you. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Would you please? If you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ in the way I've uh, described, if you've yet to respond to him like that, just a, a moment in the silence of your heart where you can do so, come to him. He's eager to receive you. Trust only in his life, death, and resurrection to cleanse you and bring you to God. And he will. If you, have yet, if you have already trusted him, rather, if you've already responded to him that way, friend, remind yourself right now how desperately you need his cleansing, that you have no hope before a holy, holy God apart from the son he did not spare for you in love. Oh, and rejoice in the servant's sprinkling right now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It just feels like this morning as we begin this servant song that we are on holy ground. That's always true as we approach you and your word. But never more so than here. For this prophecy that we know has come to pass of a disfigured one who is high and lifted up and greatly exalted having sprinkled many nations having sprinkled us would you grant this Easter season that we'd be filled with more joy and delight in him than we ever have before. Grant us this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to close by celebrating the Lord's Supper, and I have good news for you. After a hiatus of two years, we have real bread back. Yeah, now isn't that amazing? So here's how it works. If you want to come to, in a moment, when you're ready, you kind of come down the side. You're going to take a piece, you're going to receive a piece of bread. You're going to receive a piece of bread. And then you're going to choose your choice, juice or wine as the cup. Take them back to your seat. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. I do believe we have a few of the pre-packaged kind still available. If that would be your preference, we have still a few left. We'd be glad to give to you as well. If you've yet to believe on Jesus Christ, we urge you to take Christ right now. If you've already received Jesus, please come when you're ready. Receive the bread and the cup and rejoice in him.